First Peter, chapter one, beginning in verse 17. And if you call on the father who without partiality judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves throughout the time of your stay here in fear, knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct. Received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. He was indeed foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you who through him believe in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and your hope are in God. Again, beginning in verse 17, where it says, and if you call on the father in verse 17, even though it's translated, and if you call on the father, leaving some of us to think that it sounds conditional as if I may or may not call on the father, this could equally be translated. And since you call on the father. The idea being that a lot of people cry out to God as father. Many people who don't even count themselves as believers in Jesus Christ would would go so far as to say, I pray to God. And what Peter is basically saying, if you call on the father who without partiality judges according to each man's work, conduct yourselves throughout the time of your stay here. In fear. Now, remember what we've already learned in the opening chapter. The theme has been the great theme of salvation. As a matter of fact, remember, this is salvation in the context of trial, of suffering, of hardship, of pain, of persecution. This is considering your salvation in the world in which you live and the hardships that that world brings. Peter has described the source of our salvation in verses one and two. We are chosen by the father. We're made holy by the spirit. We're cleansed by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. And from the source of our salvation, Peter moves to the security of our salvation or the guarantee of our salvation in verses three through five. That security is made good by the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. And Peter illustrates that as proof and then encourages us to accept the permanence of our salvation. That is, our salvation is kept secure for us in heaven in verse four and God's power in salvation. God's mighty power assures us that we will arrive safely in heaven in verse five. And then Peter cites the source of our salvation. The security of our salvation and then the joy of our salvation in verses six through nine. He cites salvation as the theme of the Old Testament writers and the subject of endless fascination by supernatural cosmic beings in verses 10 through 12. The angels are looking at you. The angels are considering what's going on. And so Peter has written about our response 
to our salvation in verses 13 through 17. We should be self-controlled, it says in verse 13. We're to be holy before God in verses 14 and 16. We're to be respectful to God in verse 17. So Peter's touched on hope and Peter is touched on holiness. And now Peter's emphasis is going to be on honoring God and in broad brushstrokes, Peter paints a portrait of what it means to be saints who live in hope in verses three through twelve, who live in holiness in verses thirteen through twenty one. And as a matter of fact, he's going to continue to color in the first chapter with vibrant splashes of what it means to relate to one another. Harmony in verses twenty two through twenty five. The bottom line, though. Honesty and holiness is to lead to honor. We are to honor our heavenly father. And when it says in verse 17, and if you call on him, the father who without partiality judges, according to each one's work, conduct yourself throughout the time of your stay here in fear. The idea being That we fear God. Now here, fear means to have a healthy respect for God. And I think you understand the difference between a healthy respect. If you're walking on a trail in Colorado and you come upon a diamondback rattler, hopefully you're going to have a healthy fear. A, not a, a, a dread, but a healthy fear and walk in the other direction. Hopefully you have a healthy fear when you look both ways before you cross the street because you have a healthy fear of a 5,000 pound vehicle that can smash you into dust. So what does this mean? It means we have a healthy fear for, of God. We live in a world where the concept of the fear of God is thought to be psychologically unsound or emotionally debilitating. But nothing could be further from the truth. We are to reverence God. And so whatever it means to reverence God, whatever it means to fear God, it means that it's supposed to provide you with yet one more motivation to stand against temptation and endure the trials of life. Part of the point that you're supposed to come to is the fact that God made you. And because God made you and created you, he keeps an account of you and for you. The fear of God does not produce mental illness. And and make no mistake about it, properly understood, a biblical fear of God doesn't even create emotional distress. Why? Because the fear of God means to hold him in honor, recognizing his power, recognizing his might, recognizing his justice, recognizing his love. Simply put, fear and reverence mean to hold God in the highest esteem possible. And so worship and service emerge from a healthy respect for God. It is true that if a person fails to honor God, if a person refuses to reverence God, that person will bear the judgment of God and the wrath of God. People in the world speak of God in the most blasphemous ways. People trivialize God. You know, you can hardly go a day without hearing some 
person on TV go, yeah, I believe in the man upstairs. Or the person who receives an award, either film or or stage or music and go, I thank God, even though the lyrics are filthy and repulsive and completely dishonor you. But I thank God for this award. What? You see, observant Jews refuse to even speak the name of God for fear of offending God. As a matter of fact, when the observant Jew would pray, they would they would refer to the Lord, not as the father, but they would say Hashem, the name, because, again, they don't want to associate the glory of God and the power of God, the grace and the mercy, the awesome majesty of God, because for fear that they're going to offend God. Jesus changes all that when he says, when you pray, this is the way I want you to pray, say our father. Who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. F.B. Meyer wrote, quote, there is no fear like that which love begets. We do not fear God with the fear of a slave or a felon, but with the fear of the love that cannot endure the thought of giving pain to the one loving and loved. In other words, F.B. Meyer has it right when he says the thing that motivates us to honor the Lord and respect the Lord, it's because of that sense of love, that sense of honor. The Bible teaches that God judges and disciplines all people impartially according to their deeds. So when Peter writes, listen, when you when you're speaking to the father, remember who the father is. When we judge other people, we judge them by what we see. You know, isn't it interesting that you as a person judge other people by what they say and do? But how do you evaluate your own behavior? Well, I know what I meant. We evaluate our own behavior by our motives. What do you think is fair to judge us by our motives or to judge us by our behavior? You know what? God knows our motive and our behavior. The King James says without respect of persons. The NIV and the New American Standard say impartially, but that one word is a great big word in the original language. It's a pros polemtos. It's a which is what's known as the uh, it's it's the uh, alpha privative, which basically changes a positive to a negative. And so it's a no prosopon face. The verb lambano, which means to receive. And so the whole word taken together means that you don't take into consideration someone's face when you receive them. This is an ancient idiomatic expression where God says, hey, God doesn't care who you are. God doesn't care if you have a TV show. God doesn't care if you make more money than your neighbor. God doesn't care if you're white or black. God doesn't care if you're conservative or liberal. God doesn't care about your physical, social, economic circumstances. God takes all people equally and considers them equally. So there's nothing that you can do to, to, to before the Lord that can say, I want preferential treatment. Well, God doesn't give preferential treatment. Peter includes the thought that we're to reverence God because we are sojourners on the earth. In verse 17, he says, conduct yourselves throughout the time of your stay. That word is an interesting word in and of itself. 
the time of your stay. It's only one Greek word, parikos. That one word, parikos, is the word that was translated from the Hebrew into the Greek to describe the captivity of Israel in Egypt. They were there for a short time. It became a picture. It was it was a temporary home. And so it became a picture of the temporary circumstances of the believer on the earth. Here's the idea. We're just passing through. We were never meant to stay here. Your journey might be long or it might be short. This October, my grandmother is celebrating her 100th birthday. Can you imagine being on the planet a hundred years? Some of you have mothers and fathers and grandmothers and grandfathers. But no matter how long they stay, it's just for a short while. When a person is a stranger or a pilgrim in a foreign field, the person's thoughts are constantly on home. And some of you have had great privileges. You've been able to travel to Mexico or South America. You've been to third world countries. You've been to Eastern Europe and Asia. You've been all around this great big world. But you can't wait to get home. Your mind is at home. Your thoughts are at home. Your emotions are at home. You long for your cup of tea, your cup of coffee. You want to make your Starbucks run. You want to sleep in your bed. And the same is true for us. Our mind, our heart, our feeling, our affection is in heaven. And one day our heart and our feelings and our affections are going to be reunited in heaven. The psalmist in Psalm 119, 19 said, I'm a stranger in the earth. Hide not your commandments from me. It was the psalmist's way of saying, I don't belong here. Help me understand what I'm doing here. Communicate with me so that I can please you while I am here. Have you ever prayed that prayer? Lord, what am I doing here? I don't belong here. You're exactly right. If you're a Christian, you're exactly right. God made you and then God bought you to be somewhere else. And so he says, use that as a motivator for you. And so he talks about the price in verse 18. Look what it says, knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers. Peter returns to the theme. He's been talking about the blessings of salvation. Remember, we've looked at the source of salvation and the security of salvation and the joy of salvation. And now he's talking about the price of salvation. What motivates us to avoid offending God? He says we are filled with gratitude for the enormous cost, the amazing expense that God paid in Christ to buy you back from the marketplace of sin. By the way, there are three important words that are used in the Greek language to describe redemption. One of those words is agorizo. You may not know what that word means, but it's from a word agora, which means the marketplace. 
As a matter of fact, those of you who are familiar with phobias, there's a there's a phobia called agoraphobia. It's the fear of going outdoors or it's the fear of being in public places. And so this particular word meant to buy back in the market. And that's how it's used in First Corinthians six twenty and Revelation chapter five, verse nine. Another word was meant to buy out of the marketplace. So the idea is something that is purchased that can never be sold ever again. But the third word that's used in the Bible to describe this is the word lutron, which means to purchase for the purpose of setting that thing which was purchased free. And so you would purchase a slave in order to free the slave, you might purchase an animal and, and, and turn the animal back out into the wilderness or whatever. But it primarily meant to buy back, to purchase with money in the context or a, of a slave for the purposes of purchasing freedom. In the ancient world, by the way, people would sometimes be sold into slavery in order to satisfy the payment of debts. Now, for the person who says, you know, I read the Bible, look what the Bible does. The Bible approves of slavery. No, the Bible doesn't approve of slavery. The Bible also doesn't approve of debt. Here's the idea. The Bible doesn't approve of people who take their credit card and purchase something knowing that they're never going to pay it back. The Bible does not approve of people who rack up debt after debt after debt knowing that they'll never pay it back. And so in this particular culture and society, if you owed a debt, there was a mechanism to repay the debt. By the way, in the ancient world of the Hebrew people, you couldn't remain in debt forever. Imagine you take out a loan and the longest that the loan could ever last is seven years. And that's the, the amount of time that a Hebrew slave or an indentured servant could could go into debt. And so for the Jews in the Old Testament, the purchase price and the medium of exchange was precious things like gold and silver. When I was preparing this message, I couldn't help but noticing that silver is now a little bit north of $19 an ounce and gold is $1,250 plus dollars an ounce. You know, when I was a kid, it was $35 an ounce. How do you go from $35 to $1,250 an ounce? Because we live in a world that just like people don't respect debt, there are human beings who are beginning to think, hey, I live in a world where a government prints money like they're Doritos and just says, hey, don't worry, we'll make more. And they begin to understand that debt is a promise that someone will repay something. Now, think carefully about what Peter is saying. The debt that we have isn't a physical debt or a social debt. It isn't an economic debt. It's a spiritual debt. How do you pay God back when God doesn't care about land and he doesn't care about silver and he doesn't care about gold? Here is the idea. The idea is that money or things that money can buy can never change your spiritual condition towards God. The presence or the absence of money doesn't change your spiritual condition. You can't purchase 
your sin. You can't buy God off. The Christian can be stumbled or compromised by a wrong use of money, but no amount of money can purchase our redemption. No amount of money can purchase our salvation. That's the point that Peter is making. So Peter presents three big ideas that may be difficult for some people to grasp. But let me help you try to grasp it. The first big idea is why is redemption necessary? That's the point. When he says Peter speaks of our aimless conduct received by tradition from our fathers. Sinners need to be redeemed from a sinful, empty life. Where did this sinful, empty life come from? We inherited it from our ancestors and our forefathers. Some of you had fathers. And God bless you. You had fathers who taught you godly things. You, you, you had fathers who said the Bible is true and, and Jesus is real. You had a father who said, you know what? The reality is I'm going to raise you in such a way that you're going to honor God and that you're going to obey God and you're going to believe the truth about what the Bible says. But some of you weren't that fortunate. Some of you perhaps had fathers who said, you know, what's the most important thing. The most important thing in life is that you get them before they get you. Or you had a father who pointed out that the most important thing is that you make a lot of money so that you never have to be you never have to depend on anyone for anything. You may have had a father who 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 focused on pleasure, who focused on possessions, who focused on the things that pleasure and possessions provided. But Chuck Swindoll writes, and I quote, whether we know it or not, we were trapped in a lifestyle that had only empty pleasure and dead in desire to offer us. The only way for us to be emancipated from that slavery was to have someone redeem us to pay the ransom price. And that price was paid by Christ. Not with gold or silver, but with his precious blood. So when he uses the term purchase for the purpose of setting free, when you're a slave, a slave only does what the master requires. You get up and you obey the master. You participate in activities that the master desires for you. But the Bible says, guess what? You've been freed from sin. You're now free to obey God. You're free to love him and you're free to serve him. And the reality is sometimes we have to break with tradition. Remember who Peter's talking to. He's talking to Jews who grew up in a tradition of Judaism. He's talking to Gentiles who grew up in a tradition of paganism. He's talking to a group of people who were handed down traditions and some of those traditions were godly. Some of them may have been noble. Some of them may have been good. But the life that most fathers taught their children was empty and vain and hollow and destitute of wisdom and destitute of the knowledge of God. And so those are the things that are characterized by cynicism and unbelief and skepticism towards God. Some people have parents who teach them that life is a joke. Or that life is something where 
people try to take advantage of you. And so your life must be spent in hybrid vigilance, hoping that people won't be taken advantage of you. But guess what? Fathers sometimes teach us to value possessions and to value pleasure for the simple reason is because that's all they know and that's all that they care about. Guess what? If all you value is possession and all you value is pleasure, the reality is that you probably aren't thinking about heaven. You aren't thinking about the reality of what God has saved you from and what he's saving you for. There are many reasons why people want to live comfortably. There are many reasons why the unbeliever and the make believer have compelling reasons because they believe that this is the only world that really is. Carl Sagan used to say, the universe is all there is and all there ever was. And if the universe is all there is, or all there ever was, then the presence of pleasure and the absence of pain and trying to live comfortably through this life becomes the only thing that matters. But guess what? For some of us, our forefathers were wrong. They were wrong. If your heart is empty, if your heart is void, if it's unfulfilled and incomplete, if what you are living for is the pleasure that you can have or the possession that you want, the worldly heart lacks a sense of permanent purpose, of meaning and significance. Why is that? Because they have no way to see beyond their present circumstances. Now remember what Peter is writing about. He's writing to people in pain. The worldly person has little sense of assurance and acceptance by their heavenly father. Why? Because their life is so focused on this world and its joy and its sorrow and its pain and its possibility that they don't think about Jesus. They don't think about discipleship. They don't think about what it means to serve Jesus. And you know what? We're not to be lovers of the movement that Jesus started. We're to be lovers of Jesus. Did Jesus start the church? Yes. Are we to despise the church? No. But it is not the church that will save you. It is not the religious tradition that will save you. It isn't the presence or absence of goods that will save you. You can accumulate everything and have nothing. And that's why the Bible says, what does it matter if you gain the whole world and you lose your soul? Imagine a universe. Imagine a solar system. Imagine a star that's big enough to create a planet that's big enough to throw off heavy metallic surfaces so that an entire planet, the size of the planet Earth, is made of solid gold. Do you think that that would be enough money to purchase your redemption and your salvation? The answer is no. Are you so committed to living comfortably and pleasurably here? That you have zero sense of there. Why is it that you continue to live in rebellion and disobedience? Why do you spend your time struggling with sin? Or perhaps some of you have already abandoned the struggle altogether and you just indulge in sin. 
Do you neglect God, ignore the Bible, reject, rebel, curse God? Do you live in a world of transgressing the law of God and the will of God? And you take absolutely no thought that one day you will face God. And you're going to have to explain your thoughts, your motives, your behavior. You see, each and every one of us will stand before God as judge or as redeemer. And Jesus has has redeemed you. Why wouldn't you want freedom? Why wouldn't you want freedom from your sin and your empty life? Why wouldn't you want what your forefathers could never provide for you? They provided an empty life, a worldly life, a carnal life, a pleasure focused life. But you're beginning to understand something that dooms you to death. Someone said the transaction God made to buy us back from sin is not refundable. It's a permanent transaction. I was looking over a contract that the church had entered into some almost over five years ago. It was the most worthless contract that I've ever seen. I didn't sign the contract. But the contract obligated the church to purchase a worthless piece of equipment that we had to pay for for 63 months. Have you ever purchased something and it wound up being a big, fat, stinking curse? Maybe you had a gym membership. (laughs) Because there was something inside of you that says, I'm going to go and I'm going to work out. I'm going to be buff one day. And so they make you sign a contract. And something in your heart says, don't sign it. You're never going to (laughs) go. God has entered into a covenant and a contract. He made you. And he bought you. What does that mean? What does it mean that he redeemed you? It means that he purchased you to set you free from the debt that sin demands. To set you free from sin. He paid the debt we owe for violating his righteous demands. And the Lord Jesus purchased our freedom. And it cost him his life. In Matthew chapter 20 verse 28 it says, Just as the Son of Man didn't come to be served but to serve and to give his life a Ransom for many. How many? How many? For those who would come to him. Who would cry out to him. Who would say, I want freedom from my sin. And I want forgiveness for for my sin. And I want to have a right relationship with God in Christ. In 1 Peter chapter 1, look at the next verse. But... With the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. That's the second big idea. The second big idea is that our redemption can't be purchased by temporal things. You can go to church until you're blue in the face. You can read your Bible till you're blue in the face. You can go to overseas missions, you can help the homeless, you can help the poor, you can do whatever it is that you think will make God happy. But no amount of activity is going to make God happy. There's only one thing that is going to be the satisfying solution, and it's Jesus. 
That might shock you and that might surprise you. We don't have the resources to secure our freedom. If you could live one life entirely devoted to God. It still wouldn't undo the single sin that condemns you to hell. We can't purchase our freedom. We can't live in such a way as to purchase our freedom. We cannot buy ourselves back. And so the only way that we can be purchased is if Jesus decides to do it. You know, one of the most often questions I get asked on my radio program is why blood? Why does God require blood? Why does there have to be a blood Sacrifice. Why does somebody have to die? And in Leviticus chapter 17, verse 11, it says, For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you upon the altar to make atonement for your souls, for it is the blood that makes atonement for the soul. Life for life. But here's the problem. How does an eternal offense get satisfied? I was talking to a person in my office one day who happens to be a motivational speaker and why anyone would want that job is beyond me. Can you imagine? Here's your job. I want you to be happy. What do I have to be happy about? Hey, just be happy. What? Well, yeah, isn't it better to be positive than negative? But there's something disturbing. There's something suspicious inside of each person's heart when they say, I know that there's something wrong. There's something fundamentally wrong. We're living in a world. There's something broken. There's something wrong. There's something wrong and there's something broken in the world and there's something wrong and there's broken in me. And the only thing that's going to fix it isn't to put on a happy face. There's something that has to be fundamentally different and fundamentally changed. And so Peter reminds them that the blood of Jesus is no mere animal or creature. This is the precious blood of Jesus. And the huge debate centers around what constitutes effective, permanent atonement for sin. And the New Testament presents Jesus standing in our place Receiving the penalty of sin, completely satisfying God's demands. A.T. Robertson writes, quote, the blood of anyone is precious or costly. The blood of anyone is far above gold or silver. Let me be clear here. Your life. Your life, your life, your life is worth more than all of the gold and all of the silver that exists on the planet Earth. God can create gold and silver. God can create a sun. He can create a planet. He can create a solar system or a galaxy. But God doesn't have fellowship with a rock or with an orb or with a solar system or even a galaxy. Let me just be clear here. God doesn't love the sun and the earth and the moon and the stars. He loves you. He cares about you. The third big idea is we are redeemed by the blood of Jesus. Martin Luther famously said one drop of Christ's blood is worth more than heaven and earth. Hey, you might think all of the earth is 
is valuable. And you might even think, wow, and all of heaven surely is valuable. But the blood of Jesus is more precious than both heaven and earth. And was shed for you. You see, the blood of Jesus is precious because of who he is. Jesus is one person who is both God and man. Jesus, the blood of Jesus is precious because Jesus is unlike any other person. No other person came from heaven. No other person has two natures. No other person is completely God forever, but acquires a second nature so that he can have a mechanism to communicate with us and die for us. Jesus is special in all of human history. The blood of Jesus is precious because of why Jesus came to the earth. And Peter has already alluded to the revelation of God to men. That this is the theme that all of the Bible has spoken of from Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. As you march through the Bible, the reoccurring theme is I love you and I want to forgive your sin and I want to have a relationship with you. So the blood of Jesus is precious because of what it provides Redemption, forgiveness, justification, reconciliation, sanctification, access to God, constant cleansing, continuous communion with the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. But there's nothing magical about the blood of Jesus. In the ancient world, they would come up with all kinds of crazy ideas. One crazy idea was that Joseph of Arimathea somehow managed to grab the chalice, the cup of Jesus that was given at the Last Supper. And there on the cross, magically blood would spurt into the cup so that if anyone drank the cup, they would have eternal life because it was a magical cup. No, you don't have eternal life because you drink from a magical cup. You have eternal life because a historical sacrifice was made for you. There's nothing magical about Christianity and there's nothing magical about Christ. Here's what I need to tell you. Apart from the sacrifice of Jesus. You will spend eternity separated from God who loves you and Jesus who died for you. What can you imagine? I want you to just imagine for a moment. I want you to imagine something that provides redemption and forgiveness and justification and reconciliation and sanctification and access to God and constant cleaning, cleansing and continuous communion with the Father. What exists that can do that? Can religion do that? Can a good job do that? Can a conscientious government that doesn't spend more than it has do that? It's not being politically conservative or liberal that can save you. It isn't religious traditions that can save you. It isn't philosophical understanding that can save you. It's Jesus. And so he talks about the price, but then he talks about the plan. The plan 
preceded the price. But look what it says in verse 20. He was indeed, he indeed was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you. Here's what Peter is saying. The price or the cost of salvation, it's incalculable, incalculable. The plan is inscrutable. But here is the idea that it isn't some afterthought. Your redemption and your salvation wasn't just God taking advantage of, of some last ditch opportunity. There was never a time, listen carefully to what I'm about to say. There was never a time that God didn't know you or love you. You see, you were born in space and time. Your mother and your father managed somehow to see you safely to this part of the planet Earth. But there's never been a moment, there's never been a time, there's never been a moment, there's never been a time where God wasn't fully, completely, totally, Aware of who you are. Because he made you. He created you to love you. And we can hardly think of salvation apart from redemption. And both salvation and redemption are planned in the heart of God. That's the point that he's making. That plan he calls foreordained, and it's in the perfect passive participle. It's pro ginosko. It means to know beforehand. And by the way, he indeed was foreordained. He's speaking of Jesus. Jesus was foreordained before the foundation of the world. And by the way, that means one of three things. It's used three ways in Scripture. To know something well in advance or ahead of time. Number two, to know something immediately by loving and accepting and approving. Proving of it. And number three, to elect or foreordain or to predetermine something. And I suspect that there are elements of all of those meanings in this passage. In other words, before the world was ever created, God knew, God approved, God predestined Christ to redeem human beings by coming to the earth and dying for them. And it says he came, but he was manifest in these last times for you. The life of Jesus, the death of Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus is made known. And by the way, the last days began. When Jesus lived and when Jesus died on the cross and rose from the dead, the clock started ticking. It's the ultimate times. God sent Jesus, revealed Jesus and in Mark's gospel, he has John the Baptist in prison and Jesus preaching in Galilee. And the very first words out of Jesus's mouth in the gospel of Mark is the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. Turn from your sin. Believe the good news. And in verse 21, it says, who through him believe in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Don't miss what Peter's saying in verse 21, who through him, that is through Jesus, believe in God. You don't know how many people I meet who say, I believe in God. I believe in God. I just don't believe in Jesus, or at least I don't believe in Jesus the way you believe in Jesus. I believe in God, but I don't believe in a God who raised Jesus from the dead. Well, then guess what? You don't believe in the God of the Bible. Because the God of the Bible raised Jesus from the dead. Look carefully and gave Jesus glory. Look what it says so that your faith and hope are in God. Here is the idea. 
Peter knew that if God could raise Jesus from the dead, he was going to raise Peter from the dead. And that if God could raise Jesus to glory, then you could participate in that glory. And that's why our faith and hope are in God. Peter believes that Jesus is the mediator between God and man. He believes that Jesus is the only one who's worthy to have faith and hope. So Peter calls us to honesty and holiness and honor. How do we remain honest? How do we remain holy? How do we honor God? Well, think about it. We pay close attention to what we value and honor. We pay attention to what we look at. We shift our focus in a radically different direction. We don't become so preoccupied with possessions and pleasure that we forget why we're here. You know, this reminded me of a story that I read many years ago. Some of you are going to be familiar with the story. It's a children's story. And it was written many years ago. It goes like this. Tom carried his new boat to the edge of the river. He carefully placed it in the water and he slowly let out the string. How smoothly the boat sailed. Tom sat in the warm sunshine, admiring the little boat he had painstakingly built with his own hands over months and months. And suddenly a strong current caught the boat and Tom tried to pull it back to the shore, but the string broke. Tom ran along the sandy shore as fast as he could, but his boat soon slipped out of sight. And all afternoon he searched for the boat. But finally, when it was too dark to look any longer, he sadly went home. And a few days later, on the way home from school, Tom spotted a boat just like his in a store window. And when he got closer, he could see it was his boat. And he hurried to the store manager. He says, sir, that's my boat in your window. I made it. And the manager said, sorry, son, but someone else has brought in the boat this morning. And if you want it, you're going to have to buy it. It's going to cost you a dollar. Now, you've got to understand when the story was told, a dollar was an incredible amount of money. But Tom went home and he counted all of his money. Exactly one dollar. And when he reached the store, he rushed to the counter. And he said, here's the money for my boat. And then when he took the boat, he held the boat next to his heart and he said, you're twice mine. I made you. And I bought you. That's exactly what Peter's trying to tell you. You're twice Jesus's. He made you. The Bible says in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In Colossians, it said he made everything that Jesus made everything. He made everything for himself. He made you and he bought you. You don't just belong to him once. You belong to him twice. And it's supposed to be something that motivates you. To love him. And to honor him. And to decide to live your life differently. For him. That's the point. The Bible says that God made us to enjoy all his creation. 
He made the trees to climb on and the rivers to swim. But for some of you, some of you, the string is broken. And the wave and the wind has blown you in a direction that you have no business being in. But the scarlet thread of redemption draws you back. Because no matter how terrible the wind and no matter how horrible the wave. Your life exists so that he could make you and redeem you to love you. That's why you should honor him. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, I pray for each and every person within the sound of my voice. Lord, I pray for that person who has been blown off course. Lord, I pray for the person who feels soaked and saturated with wickedness and can't even imagine what it would be like to have a right relationship with you. But Lord, I pray that they would accept the invitation that you extend to them. Lord, we know that Jesus said, come to me, all you who labor and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. Jesus offers forgiveness. Hope. Lord, we know that Jesus bought us back, not so that we could remain slaves, but so that we could be free. We're free to love. We're free to live. (laughs) Like the contemporary writer says, we are free to dance. We're free to live for you. We're free. Lord, we thank you for that. Lord, speak to hearts. Extend forgiveness and hope. Lord, I pray that that person will find it within their strength to say, Lord, that's what I want. I want forgiveness and I want cleansing and I want hope. And I know it's available through Jesus. And I also know that it's not available from anywhere else. And so I love you and believe you. That you died for my sin. That you made me and that you bought me. Forgive me now. Write my name in the Lamb's book of life. Fulfill the destiny that I was created for. To love you and to serve you. In Jesus name. Amen. Let's stand.